I love Rhode Island. I love the ocean. I love the culture. I love the history. I love the uniqueness of all of the different communities. I love the food. But most of all, I love the people. And and the reason that I love the people of Rhode Island, one of the main reasons I love the people of Rhode Island is because of how upfront and real they are. So I grew up in the Midwest, and people generally would be nice to you, but you didn't always know where you stood with them. It was refreshing to discover quickly here, for the most part, you know where you stand with somebody, either good or bad, because people just tell you like it is. And in the church that I grew up in, as good as it was and as much of a foundation it laid for me, one of the things that I encountered was that people wouldn't always be real. They would put on what we called their church smile. And uh, you never really knew what was happening behind that smile. And unfortunately, what this created was a church culture where you thought that you needed to put on your church smile, even when things weren't going well. And while I do not believe this is what they intended, this gave an illusion that being a Christian meant everything in your life should be perfect. You should no longer need to struggle with sin or doubt or sadness or fear or addiction or loneliness or grief. Or or worse, there were some churches, not just in the Midwest, that teach that if you do the right things, you follow the rules, and you have enough faith, God will give you everything you want. You'll have health, wealth, and your best life now. And because of these practices and teachings, there are many who end up disappointed and disillusioned and walk away from their faith in God because their life doesn't match this false projected image that everything is great, or their life continues to have hurt, loss, illness, struggles with money, and they think it's their fault, and God is mad at them or punishing them because of the false, if you only have enough faith message that they've heard. But that's not the message of the gospel, and that's not what following Jesus is all about. We're starting a new series that we're calling For Real. And we'll read through a letter that was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, to a group of Jesus' followers. And James writes like he's from Rhode Island. He tells it like it is. James spells out for us what it looks like to live like Jesus. When we read the letter, it's almost like James is melding the Sermon on the Mount with the book of Proverbs. It's very practical and it connects into our everyday lives. And he doesn't waste any time in getting right down to it. So 
We're going to start with James chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first four verses. The words will be on the screen. He says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. James is writing this letter to a group of Jewish Christians. And following Jesus has cost them dearly. It's cost them relationships. They have been ostracized by their communities and by their families because they no longer are following the ancient Jewish practices. Now they're following this person named Jesus. They're being hunted down and killed by Jewish religious leaders and imprisoned. And they're also suffering other things that are going on. We know in the book of Acts that there was this huge famine that occurred that affected this entire region. And out of the gate, James says, hey, I know you are going through some really difficult stuff. And even after saying yes to following Jesus, life is still hard. But remember that God is working through your hardship. Every one of us faces trials of various kinds. Some of those trials are more challenging or more difficult than others. Conflicts in our relationships, sickness, stuff that breaks and needs to be replaced. Heartbreaking news that we see in our world today. Loss, grief depression, pain, and the list goes on and on and on. And if we were honest, I think on some level, when we come to God, we believe that life should be easier. Our problems should get fixed and our struggles should disappear, or at least not be as tough as they are. And James reminds us that trials still happen. But we shouldn't get so caught up in the trial that we miss what the trial is producing. What if our relationship with God is actually deepened through trials? He identifies three things that trials do. The first thing he says here is that trials test our faith. Trials test our faith. Trials do not produce faith. Trials test faith. They reveal how much we really trust God. It's like a measuring stick of our faith. It's easy when things are going our way or going well to say we trust God, to worship Him, to talk about Him with, uh, to, to, to others. But when things fall apart, when things don't happen the way we, th- they, we think they should, Where do we turn or what do we do? One of my hardest trials were the years my wife Wendy and I went through infertility. As we were going through this, I was still fresh and coming back to my relationship with God after walking away from Him for a period of my life. And I realized in this, while I had been slowly trusting Him again, I wasn't fully there. There are tons of doubt and questioning. There was a lot of anger and hurt at him. 
and a lot of effort to try to control everything in my life. And this season of our lives revealed that I still had a long way to go on how much I trusted God. It was a measuring stick of where my faith in Him was. The second thing that we see that trials do is trials produce patience. The word steadfastness used here can be interchanged with the word patient. And, and in the Greek word that James uses here, it, it's the picture of someone under a heavy load choosing to stay under that rather than trying to escape. The King James version of this may be the word long-suffering. Patience isn't natural for us. We want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. Now. <laughs> and many times we ask God to give us patience in a particular circumstance or situation. And in reality, what God does through His Spirit, is He gives us the strength to stand under the load of our trial instead of seeking an escape. Escape can come in the form of something, you, um, something that you try to forget or ease the pain, like drugs or alcohol, or just completely checking out, binging on food or TV. Escape can be a shortcut out of a trial. But over time, as we mature, we learn to lean on God in the midst of that trial and trust His Spirit to give us the strength to stand up under the weight of our trial rather than trying to get out from under the weight. And then the third thing that James says that trials produce is a trial. Trials lead us to wholeness. The Greek word for perfect is the word teleos, which means wholeness, or to be made whole. Sin has broken us. We are fractured and we're inconsistent. Our attention and our affections are divided. Sometimes we're focused on doing what pleases ourselves, and other times we're focused on what pleases God. And God uses our trial, the trials in our life as a way to mend the brokenness. Trials remind us that we aren't in control, but He is. Trials remind us that we need to be dependent on Him. Trials remind us that without Him, we are nothing. Trials make us more dependent on His Spirit working in us. Trials help us to ultimately turn our attention and our affection where they should be, on Him and only on Him. And all of these things begin to make us more like Jesus. This is why James says we find our joy in our trials. Because we know that God works through them to make us more like Jesus. Knowing how God uses trials in our life changes what we ask for from God when we face them. That's what James talks about next in verses 5 through eight. He says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives it generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask, him, let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea 
that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I don't know about you, but when I'm facing a trial or a difficulty in my life, I usually do one of two things, and sometimes, or most of the time, I actually do both. The first thing I do is I ask God to take the trial away from me. God, please get this far away from me. Make things easier. Or I look for a solution. I want to fix whatever that problem is. And then I spend all of my time worrying about it. Like, that's my pattern. And James says when we are facing trials, we should confidently ask God for wisdom. Proverbs, and so just kind of like, why wisdom? Proverbs 9, 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear, as used here, doesn't mean afraid or terrified, but means humility, deep reverence and submission. It's realizing and recognizing who God is. At the core of wisdom is having our eyes and our hearts opened up to who God is and our need for Him. True wisdom is choosing to believe that God is good despite our circumstance. To be wise means to listen to and obey what to, and to listen to and obey God in our trials because we know He is good. We should trust our good God to guide each of our steps in our trial. I love what Warren Wiersbe says about wisdom and trials. He says this, why do we need wisdom when we are going through trials? Why not ask for strength or grace or even deliverance for this reason? We need wisdom so we will not waste the opportunities God is giving us to mature. Wisdom helps us understand how to use these circumstances for our good and God's glory. And basically what he's saying is wisdom also allows us to use our hearts, see our hardship through a different perspective. Not only what it does for us, but what it allows us to do for others. The wisest and most mature people are often those who have gone through some especially hard time which God used for their good, and this is God's purpose for us in our trials as well. And as we grow in maturity and wisdom, we can then help more people, especially those who encounter the similar difficulty as we've been through. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our all who comforts us in all our affliction, you can put the word trial there, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort of which we ourselves are comforted by God. There are trials that each of us have gone through and endured with the help of God that allow us to relate and empathize in a way that someone who hasn't faced or endured that trial can. I think of those who have fought the trial of addiction and with God's, with God's help and have overcome, and now you are able to connect with those who are in the midst of their addiction. 
I think of those who have gone through the trial of divorce and with God's help have overcome, and now you're able to relate to those going through or have gone through divorce on a way that others can't. I think of those who have lost someone and someone you've loved, and you're at a different place in your grief journey, and you are able to connect and relate to those who have lost parents or spouses or siblings or children in a way that no one else can. Are you in the midst of a trial right now? Ask God for wisdom, believing that he will give it to you generously. And when you start to face a trial, make your first request to God for wisdom. And then James kind of pivots a little bit and he identifies two traps that we can easily fall to when it comes to facing trials. James 1, 9 through 12. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fail and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The first trap is distraction. It's easy to get distracted by what we have or what we don't have when we face a trial. The lowly brother is the person who thinks they don't have enough, and maybe they don't. But when they're in the trial, they think the solution is having more resources, be it money or stuff, so they become distracted by their scarcity. Thinking more, fill in the blank, is their way out. On the other hand, when those who are rich or wealthy face a trial, they will often turn to their resources a way of overcoming or finding a solution to their trial. They become distracted by their abundance. For each, the resolution or solution to those trials is something other than God. Both seek relief from the trial rather than allowing God to use their trial as a way of maturing them in Him. And both seek a solution apart from trusting God and miss out on the work He's doing in the trial, helping them become more like Jesus. James also said there's something better. There's something that lasts so much longer than the temporary things we often pursue and put our trust in. It's our relationship with God that leads us to eternal life with Him or this crown of life. He reminds, us that in our, he reminds us that our identity is not in what we have or what we don't have, but it's the fact that we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We, we must remember that we are loved as children of God. And knowing this and believing this helps us endure or remain patient in our trials. Notice the last part of this section. James doesn't say the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who persevere. 
or to those who obey or to those who believe in him, but rather, he says, to those who love him. Why does he say this? It's because love for Christ keeps us from loving the world. Love for Christ motivates us to persevere into trials. Love for Christ does not exempt us from trials. Rather, it gives us the strength to endure. Love for Christ is the inevitable result of belief in Him. When Jesus talks to Peter, right after Peter has denied Him and, and, and Jesus is in the process of restoring Peter to Him, what was the question He asked? Peter, do you love me? Why? Because the love for Christ is the necessary motivation for us to continue to serve Him. Especially when serving Him causes hardship. We need to continually keep our attention and our affection on God, which is what the next trap that James mentions. Verse 13 through 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. The second trap that we can fall into is deception. One of the trials that we face in life is temptation. And the trap that we can fall into is thinking that that temptation can come from God. This is the first deception of Satan used in the garden against Adam and Eve, questioning God's goodness. Did God, he asked the question of Adam and Eve, did God really say that you must not eat of any of the trees of the garden? Which God didn't say at all. He just said one tree. What Satan was trying to do was to get them to believe that God was withholding something good from them. That God is not good and he does not love them. Otherwise, he wouldn't withhold things from them. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago, essentially what sin does in us is it twists our desire away from God and onto ourselves. And James tells us that temptation happens when we are lured and enticed by our desire to please ourselves. Temptation is that moment of having our thoughts and attention. We are lured, stirred to our affections. We are enticed. Temptation doesn't come from God. It comes out of this desire for us to, to please ourselves. And we are deceived when we believe that our twisted desire leads us to... We are deceived when our twisted desire leads us to believe 
that the pursuit of what we are being tempted by will somehow bring us life or bring us goodness. We believe a lie. So when we give into temptation, we're buying into this lie that we can find what we need outside of God's will and design for us. And what we end up pursuing is the thing that leads us into chains and bondage and shame and isolation and death. So how should we deal with temptation? First of all, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, just avoid it. Don't put yourself in the place that you know you're going to be tempted. All of us know those different places. And just don't put yourself in those places. The second thing that we need to do is look ahead. Oftentimes when we face temptation, all we can see is what desire is leading us to, but we don't see past that. We need to see where that decision will ultimately lead us. We need to know the consequences of that choice, the impact that that choice will have, not just on our lives, but on the lives of others. We need to feel the embarrassment and the shame when that gets discovered. We need to think about the hurt that that is going to cause someone before we even step into that decision. And ultimately, we need to know that that does not lead to life. And then the third thing that we need to do when we face temptation is, rather than looking at whatever it is that you're trying to avoid, that we're trying to avoid, is we need to look up. We need to look above. And this is how James wraps up this section. He just says, know that God is good. His ways are right and His ways bring life. That every good and perfect gift comes from Him. His ways are best and they're for our best. He wants to protect us from ourselves. And He never changes. God is constant. He doesn't shift with the shadow. There's no shadow in Him. There's nothing bad in him. He is good all the time. The pastor of Passion uh, City Church in D.C., Ben Stewart, says this. He says, what you think about is what you care about, and what you care about is what you chase. We, we must shift our thinking about what we think about and allow God to realign our thinking. Romans 12.2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And our movement towards God is one movement with two parts. It's a movement away from the ways of thinking and living 
that isolate us from the relationship with God that has been made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. So it's turning away from those things that keep us away from God. And it's movement towards ways of thinking and living that promote a loving relationship with God. It's doing things that God wants us to do. It's about saying no for a better yes. So, so here's the bottom line of all of this. Rejoice in our trials. Know that God is with us in our trials. Know that God is working through our trials. Ask for wisdom and know that He will give it to you. Know that God didn't cause our trial, but that He uses it for His good, for our good, and for the good of others. Know that God is good and faithful and in control and that we can trust Him. And know that God loves us and will never leave us alone. Let's pray. Make sure we Kenya clap after our prayer, okay? A big wow. Father, thank you so much that you are the God who works in our trials, that you are a God who continues to refine us even in the hard things of life. And Father, I pray this morning that you would transform our thinking, that you would change us, that this wouldn't just be about more information that we can write down and, and tuck away, but Father, that this would begin to transform us by your Spirit and the way that we see you, the way that we see you in our trials, the way that we know that you are good, and the way that you refine us to, be us, to make us more like you. Father, it's a hard thing to say. Thank you for our trials. But Father, help us to see our trials differently and to be able to take joy in the fact of what you do in them. Father, I pray for strength for us. I pray for wisdom for us. I pray that, Father, that you would make us a community of people who are being made more like you each and every day. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Wow. All right.